Hello and welcome to episode 54 of Constructed Comics, a podcast building comic stories one page and one panel at a time. On this episode, we have an interview with David Taylor. David is currently running a Kickstarter for his comic, The Grave. This is Matt and I'm joined by my co-host Noah. Hey there. Uh, David, thanks so much for agreeing to be on and uh, being interviewed for our podcast. Why don't you uh, start us off with a brief uh, bio about yourself and, and the comics that you make? Sure. So I'm, a, I'm, I'm David Taylor. I'm an artist and writer from Scotland, um, and I make crime comics. Uh, I've produced three so far, Decade, Her, and The Grave, and they're all very much kind of noir-type pieces, hard-boiled fiction. Um, the Grave is my most recent one. It's pretty much everything I love about crime fiction, and I've tried to blend that through all the things I, I enjoy most. Um, and I think, you know, I was just thinking, you know, you, you asked me some things by email earlier around kind of, you know, comics in general and why. And I think it's because I just love that words and images, the way they go together in comics, that there's no other medium can do that mm-hmm. and the flexibility it gives. Um, and it just suits me perfectly. So you have you have three comics, um, and the, the the third one, The Grave, is currently on Kickstarter. Um, is there a, are they sort of standalones? Is there a common theme that runs through any of the other three? Yes, yeah, so I mean they're, they're all standalone stories. They all do their own thing. So Decades is a, a serial killer type story, and it's very much detective fiction. Um, but it tries to look at it from a different angle. Her is a tribute to the nineteen fifties EC crime comics. So it's very kind of short and sharp and quite lurid in some ways. Then The Grave is more like a neo-noir from kind of late 80s, early 90s. The pitch that I kind of had for that was, imagine if the Coen's cast of Esther Stallone in a revenge movie. <laughs> uh, I kind of used that as a way of getting the right tone. Um, so th- they're all very distinct in some ways, but they tie together because the sort of themes I want to look at. And I, I'm really interested in what violence does to people. And I think in a lot of crime fiction, violence is presented in this very light way almost. And I wanted to think about what happens to people after these things happen. What, what does it mean for them? So that's the kind of the common theme, I think. Very cool. Um, so the, the first book, Decades, you said that was a serial killer that was from a different point of view. What was the, what was the different point of view that you were going for there? So I, I set the story after he's been caught and after he's been in prison for, for around 10 years. And I was trying to think about, so when, when things like that happen, and it's, it's all the effect of everybody who's involved in an investigation, and it can be from the victim's families, it can be to the people that work the case, and also the killer themselves. And I was trying to think about how would that change your perception? You know, how can you be honest about what you've done? And it all revolves around um, what happens when the killer was caught originally and the truth of how many people he's killed, the truth of how he was arrested, um, and then what it meant for everybody's life in the 10 years that followed. So that was, I was trying to find something that wasn't about the murders and it wasn't about showing, you know, because he, he kills women and I didn't want to show anything of him killing women. I was like, that didn't interest me. But I thought looking at the emotional effect it would have on everybody involved in the case was very interesting. That is interesting. Did you take inspiration from real events for that book? Like, uh... Any real, any real people, um, accounts of like uh, victims' families and things like that for that book? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it, was, it probably wasn't, it wasn't a great period for people looking at my reading. That was just <laughs> working things. It was like endless books about serial killers and about <laughs> psychology. So people made some judgments, I think, at that time. But um, definitely, I, I was really interested in the reality of, um, yeah. of, how, of how serial killers think. 
I didn't want to do something that, so say a, a movie like Seven, and I, I think it's a great film, but it's definitely that kind of serial killer of the week. It even says that at one point. And I didn't want to do that because if you look at these guys, they're, they've got serious emotional and mental health problems. And what happens that follows, you know, does the same thing to everybody who touches it. And I was like, well, if I'm going to write about that, I want to do it with some respect. And I can only do that if I understand it. Yeah. So real things about, you know, different serial killers and what felt true for the one I'd written, but also what I knew about detectives who worked in these sort of cases and the research done what it meant to them in the years that followed. So I wanted to keep it very grounded. Did you do that one in black and white, sort of like your her style and grave style as well? Yeah, so it was in black and white, but um, I didn't use tones then. So I, I okay. used more to shape and bring out more depth in the art. Um, I was truthfully a much, I was a much more crude artist back then. I was still learning how to draw digitally and I was trying to learn how to tell a story. Um, I'm still proud of it. I think it's a good piece, but certainly, yeah, it was black and white. That really, it really suits the world I'm creating a lot of the time. Um, where things are a lot more harsh, I can do a lot more with heavy blacks and things like that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I love your your style. That on the piece that I read from from her, I loved your use of tones and blacks and whites. I mean, you have a very your composition is very similar to Frank Miller, and you do a lot of the similar stuff where you do the the blood is white and like sort of it 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 sort of highlights itself in shadow, and you do other things like that. But I liked your use of adding in ink tones and, um, and screen tones as well. Uh, do you have a philosophy for when you put things like that into your, into your style now, or is it just sort of what feels right in the moment? Sometimes, so her, her's a good example of yeah. when I, I started working and it was designed to be, I was releasing on Instagram. Mm. Um, that's why everything's in that square format. Ah, okay. Yeah. And I was, I, I wanted to try tones out and I wanted to think about how can I make my work have more depth without moving into color. But then, you know, you made that point about, you know, how does something like blood appear? Um, well, a lot of time you would draw it black and then you'd color it or whatever. And I was like, well, I need to do something that makes it stand out. And then I thought, how can I make that design feature? And truthfully, you can look at lots of artists. I mean, Frank Miller is a, you know, a great example of yeah. you know, that, you know, the first kind of Sin City book, you know, and The Hard Goodbye and then A Dane to Kill For. It's such a striking looking story. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, well, I don't want to do the same thing. I wouldn't want to ever just copy someone I admire. Exactly. But, the tones let me also capture some of that 1930s and 40s movies kind of feeling. So it was a good way of getting together and also practicing for what I wanted to do in the grave. That's awesome. So um, your background as an artist, uh, did you go to school for that? Or are you, are you self-taught or, or a little bit of both? I'm, 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 art, I'm an art school person. Um, so obviously I did that when I finished um, school over here. So high school, I guess, for, for the US. Um, so when I finished that, um, went to art school for a few years um, and then more or less stopped doing art. Um, I found lots of other things in writing and music and then just slowly came back around. So I had to re reteach myself a lot of things. So it ended up being a bit of a hybrid. Um, but the benefit coming back to it when I was older was that my taste had changed a lot and there was a lot of artists I was now looking at that I probably wouldn't have thought of when I was maybe 17 or 18. Um, and I was much more interested in guys like, say, Darwin Cook and people that were really efficient and really particular, the sort of lines, they were really elegant. And I started thinking about, could I do something like that that felt probably closer to where I wanted to be? Um, also, the Belgian artist, Hergé. Oh, yeah. Tintin, I loved his stuff when I was a kid. And I kept coming back and thinking, I'd love to do something as beautiful as that. I'm not anywhere near there, but you know, definitely in that space. That's awesome. 
So when you went to, to art school, um, was the was the thought, um, you know, comics or was it, you know, graphic design? Because I, I, I hear stories a lot of times at art school where, where people are sort of go to art school with, uh, you know, desires of being in comic books. And, you know, sometimes they're kind of steered away from that was was. Was that the was that always your plan, or did you did you shift plans here? Um, honestly, I didn't have any plan. That was the problem. <laughs> I had a clue what I wanted to do, and I, so if I went to art school because it meant I didn't have to do exams, and I hated exams more than anything. <laughs> um, so it was a it was a very practical choice that didn't really work for me. Um, but definitely, as you want, one of the things you said there, you, you get pushed away from doing things that feel good to you because they're either thinking about fine art and things that are very traditional. Um, or abstract art or graphic design. Um, I love graphic design and part of my, my day job still involves that. But I didn't want to do that as a living. I didn't want that to be my thing. So that's probably actually why I fell away from doing art for a while was I just didn't feel I was able to connect with anything and I didn't know if I was good enough to be doing comics. Um, and then I, you know, I just got to a point where that didn't matter to me anymore because I just wanted to make them. Um, so I didn't really care if I was good or not. It was making me happy. Mm -hmm. Was there a line in the sand where you were like, like you needed something in your life, like making comics. And that was sort of when you had these ideas for these stories and you were like, okay, this is the way I'm going to tell them. Decades, um, decades I had in my head from when I was about 17 years old. Wow. Um, so I had the basic concept of what was going on. It was all, I don't want to do a history lesson or anything, but there was a serial piracy killers in the UK called um, the Moore's Murderers. Hmm. And it's a guy called Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. Anyway, they were, they were convicted, they'd been in prison for a long time, but there was always a question about where one of the victims had been buried. Mm. And the police took him out, took Ian Brady out on a drive to the moors where the murderers, the victims were buried. And I just thought to myself, that's an amazing idea for a story in itself about taking someone out to find the victims that they'd never admitted to. Um, and so that just stuck with me from when I was a kid, you know, was a 17. And I just always kind of thought, is there a story I could ever tell about that? Yeah. And I guess, I got old enough that I felt I was confident to start trying to write my own stories properly and really make that work. Um, but yeah, I, I, it wasn't just a line in the sand. I'd had lots of things in my head for a long time. And I'd watched films or read books and I thought, I'd love to do something like that, but yeah. not that. And I was like, nobody else was making it. So, well, that really left me. And <laughs> I thought, well, if no one else is going to make it for me, I should make it for myself. Exactly. That's awesome. That's inspiring. Do you... Um so you said like uh, in college, you sort of were like Darwin Cook, Sir, um, her, the Tintin artist. Um, what are your sort of like, what were some artists like later on that you were like, oh, I love their stuff? Because um, you definitely have a Jeff Lemire flair in your art style and sort of like uh, Gabriel Ba, what's his name, Moon. My, my mouth isn't working today. I'm very sorry. But um, you have, you also have this great, um, you have this textured feel to your artwork. It's very similar to Jock as well. Um, were you sort of influenced by a lot of those artists? Yeah, I mean, I can't fail to pick stuff up from people. Yeah. And just absorb everything anyway. And yeah. Always, or, and actually, it's funny you mentioned Jock. There was a few of his covers that um, I was looking at some of his DC covers over the last sort of five years. And that texture element of yeah. different involved in it and lots of overlays and that, that really spoke to me. So when I was doing cover designs for the Brave in particular, I didn't use them in the final version, but that's there. That was part of my process to get to that. But um, Jeff Lemire is one of my absolute favorites, so that's really cool to hear. Um, Eduardo Risso, um, yeah. I came 
then later, Frank Miller, I'd love, you know, from when I was a kid, but I kind of came back. One that stuck with me from when I was about 19 has been Howard Chaikin. Oh, yeah. Um, so I think I would hope people can see some of that influence in my layouts and the way I can yeah. present characters. They're very chunky and they feel like they have presence. Um, but I think, actually, I mean, Darwin Cook, I, I probably didn't really discover him until, actually, there's one other one I mentioned, Steve Dillon. Oh, yeah. um, Steve Dillon's stuff is inspiring to me because he's, it's pure economy. He doesn't waste space. He doesn't overdraw. He's just totally thoughtful about how do you get the story out. Um, but yeah, Darwin Cook, I'd seen some of his stuff when I was younger, particularly the Batman animated series. So I sort of knew who he was. But it was when um, his adaptation of The Hunter, the Parker book, came out. And that must be like nearly 10 years ago. Um, and it, it just it literally made my head spin reading it because I'd never seen someone apply those, that style to something that's so hard-boiled and it worked perfectly. And he just yeah. chooses these perfect little moments. The backgrounds are never overdone and that kind of single color use. That was really actually what made me think about how to use the tones. I didn't want to use colors and then people go, oh, you're just copying one of your heroes because that would be true. But how could I do something myself with it? So that, yeah. was, that came around. Yeah, you steal like an artist, right? That's all. That's what it's all about. But yeah, yeah. When I when I liked it, I love I love hearing artists talk about their influences as well because I just love I, I love being inspired by people who are inspired by other people as well. I just sort of I love to see where all the influences come from. Uh, would you say so for writing for you then? Uh, was that sort of second nature to storytelling, like having this illustration background? Did writing sort of come naturally from there, or had you always been a writer as well? Um, I'm probably a better writer than I am an artist. Um, I, I write for a living, so that's okay. one of the key things. And I was always I was good at writing. I understand language well in order to use it. And that's another thing I absorb quite quickly, different styles. Mm. Um, but to me, actually, the writing process, they happen at the same time. Okay. Um, I never, I'll never write the full script before I know what the images are. And they always kind of, they seem to follow each other around. So I'll sometimes start with like maybe a paragraph that is the story, what I want it to be about or what I want it to say. And then I'll start drawing some of the characters I think that might exist in that world. And once I know what they look like, I write a bit more and I write about who they are, what they believe, what's going to happen to them. And um, it's going to change their worldview. And then that informs the next part of the story. So I'm probably, I think, I think I've improved a lot as an artist and I'm, I quite, I'm quite happy with what I did for The Grave. Um, but I think my writing is definitely the strength that binds it together. I find that a lot easier to do. So it seems like you have a sort of modern take on the, the old like 60s Marvel method where you're not working from, from full script. You have, like you said, you have that paragraph that's sort of like the, the, the spark of an idea. Then you're doing some illustrations. And then from there, you're, you're, going, you're, you're circling back one more time or a couple more times to, to build the story. So that's, that's pretty cool. That's like I said, it's like almost like a modern take on that, that 60s Marvel method where you know, Stan would tell you know, Jack Kirby, you know, this Fantastic Four ep- uh, issue is about you know, a space alien coming in and then, then the pages would come back and he would fill it out. So you're doing, a, you're doing your own take on that. Yeah. Although being quite, it's funny you say that because how to draw comics the Marvel way is sitting on my desk in front of me. <laughs> yeah. um, that's a really strange thing that you mentioned. And in fact, the iPad is propped up on it to make sure it's the right height. So, <laughs> um, so, you know, so Jack, Stan and John are, are definitely in my work. And actually that's really where I learned. Um, my, that was my first taste of visual storytelling was that book. I, like, I saw it, I'm, I think how old would I have been, like 15 or 16? And I, I like kept saying to my mother, I was like, please, I really want that. I really want that book. 
and I think she bought it just to shut me up. Um, <laughs> but that, you know, it's, it's proper life-changing stuff. And, you know, it's funny, I never thought about it that way till you said that, you know, I am using a form of the Marvel method. I'm just treating myself as the artist at the end. Well, what's amazing, that book was my sort of intro to comics and storytelling illustration-wise too. My dad got it for me because he's, he was a mathematician and he loved the, the, the perspective stuff in it which I never use. <laughs> and, um, but then, uh, but what's interesting about that, I was just having a great conversation and you brought up Steve Dillon. Um, then like you know, his contemporaries sort of being like, you know, Dave Gibbons and now, you know, Jason Burroughs and stuff like that, who are, and your style is very similar to this too. It's sort of like you learn that those fundamentals, but like, you know, sticking to that guidebook, like can almost be limiting at times because you see all those artists and they are like the anti Marvel method of composition and page layout and stuff like that. And uh, when you're trying to get a story told quickly and true and gritty, like it's it, sometimes it's best not to be all the camera angles aren't straight on and stuff like that. You know, sometimes you have to be clear with your storytelling yeah. and um, yeah, with the, with your book, you can definitely see that. So that being said, like, um, do you find being more simple with your composition? Like, you know, like simple camera angles, like this is here, this is there. Was that easier to like, you know, to to post it to Instagram with things like her and stuff like that? Like, did you, did you try to stick to a more simple layout? Yeah, because, so I, I had two challenges with her. So I drew it at like five by five inches. When yeah. I, was, I work on my iPad Pro. And so I kind of knew when I shrunk it down to Instagram, I would test it on what I thought would be on my phone. And you had to, I had to be really particular the moments I chose and how much detail I could really allow. Um, and so you, the, sometimes the forum makes some decisions for you. Um, but the size meant I couldn't have a lot of stuff. But actually, yeah, people were viewing it. They're maybe only going to scroll one or two panels at the beginning. And so you have to make sure you hook them with something that's really clear and obvious. Yeah. I was really also, I never wanted the, the and hopefully you can saw this in the text that's on it. The text never speaks to exactly what's happening in the panel. It's always about what's in someone's head. Right. And some the events of the panel, what's going on in the image, are completely different to what the, the main character thinks is going on. Um, so I had to be really careful about that too, because I also had to assume that people might not read the text. <laughs> so you yeah. know what's happening moment to moment. But yes, yeah, so I, I couldn't go out and get away with crazy angles or things like that. But if you look at a lot of the, the film noir type movies, particularly stuff from the, the 40s, they were limited by technology. But those limitations let them do a lot of things. So they relied on a lot of heavy shadows to cover up cheap sets. Right. But, you know, that, that's a benefit for an artist because if there's not much else in the panel, it's mostly heavy black, it really draws the eye to something that is light, which was almost always a figure or a person. So that, that gave me a lot of benefits. We talk about that a lot on this panel because um, Sean Murphy talks about that in his artwork. It's the 70-30 rule that if 70% is black, you're going to be drawn to the 30% that's white you know, yeah. and on and on. Um, now, posting to Instagram, did you find success in that? Because that's, that's something I don't see very often. We haven't talked to very many artists who do that. Um, the first part, the first couple of parts did brilliantly. Um, but I think that's true actually most stories. The first couple of parts do really well and then people drift away. Or right. The problem with Instagram is that it's not a great content platform. Yeah. It's really hard to draw people to a series of consecutive posts. And people have to go looking for it. But certainly I was doing a part every week and it was landing on a Sunday usually. Um, so I was getting a fairly good amount of traffic. But honestly, her did better when I collected in a little PDF and started sharing it with people. Okay. That was 
people were reading that and sort of saying things to me about, oh, you know, that's really different. I wouldn't have expected. And also people that didn't read comics normally were picking that up and sort of sending me messages saying, oh, and I wouldn't have thought of trying something like that, but it was just so easy. But doing an Instagram was more to give myself a challenge. Mm. Was that, so decades was a really long story. It's like 152 pages. Um, and it was a stupid first thing to try as my first effort. Um, and you know, it gave me lots of problems because I was trying to fix things and I didn't really figure out the narrative structure very well. So when I did her, I said, I'm going to give myself 60 panels and that's it. My entire story is going to be in 60 panels and I won't go above that. Um, and so the way I made myself of a limitation was, and I'll do it on Instagram because then I've got no other freedom. Um, and actually the version I'm going to print um, once this Kickstarter is finished that has two extra panels just because it didn't really resolve very cleanly otherwise. Oh, it's cool. a bit strange when yeah. it just ends the book. Um, it made sense on the Instagram, but it didn't make sense in print. So there's some thoughts coming to that. So I did break my rule eventually, but for a good reason. Did you, were you working on um, The Grave at the same time as you were working on her? So you were doing like a bigger book and then doing the, the one panel a week comic yeah. as well? Yeah, pretty much. Um, the, this version of The Grave was basically, it took me a year. So basically this time last year was when I started writing the proper script. Okay. Um, but the actual ideas and the concepts for it were, were happening when I was writing her. And I say I was using it to test out doing tone work and how I could use that in my art and really to land on a proper style for The Grave. And yeah. um, Dead was just a mix of everything. I, the best I could do at that time. I didn't think too much else about it. But I wanted The Grave to really have its identity. And I thought, well, the best way that I learn things is just doing them. But if I can put it in the service of a story, it was, it was testing me out a little bit. It was making me think about really particular moments and how can I find those moments when I tell a story. So that, that was, it, was a great, it was a great exercise to get me there. But yeah, I, I was working on them at the same time. Very cool. Very cool. Do um, Now, Matt and I, like we, we sort of, we share responsibility of like, you know, rough script art and stuff like that. And um, we, we, we've worked towards like, you know, doing smaller stories and then getting up to bigger stories. So like your advice, like what's your advice for like creators, artists, writers, like um, who want to get stuff out there for people to see? Like, do you, do you think like, you know, the best thing is to sort of shop around PDFs of shorter stories and things like that? Or to, um, like, you know, what's, what's your advice to people who have like maybe more digestible, smaller stuff to put out there? I would definitely put together a small PDS okay. um, and, and send them out. So you've always got to remember that people either are really busy or they think they're really busy. Right. And giving them an 100, 100 page book to read, yeah. um, it's quite hard to say make that investment of time. Mm-hmm. So the shorter your stories are, the easier it is for everybody to get into them. And actually you're giving people a taster. And what I was learning, so preparing for like this Kickstarter that, that I'm running, was by having the first part of the grave, which was like 32 pages and having her, which is like 60 panels, so maybe 20 pages of content, you're giving people a really easy access point into your world. And it's like no investment of time. You can read a 32 page floppy in 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like an easier access point um, if you're trying to build an audience. And so I think, and certainly actually, and for you as a writer, um, I got much more out of writing her than I did decades. I learned much more because I was forcing myself to do something that was going to be really short and stood alone. And there was no extra context needed. It was just like, you can read this and enjoy it and then you're done. And that gives people faith that when they get to another project, it's going to also be fun, even if it's longer. So it's just about, you know, building on the skills you have. 
I, I do think it was a mistake. I'm very proud of decades, but it was a mistake doing something so long as my first effort because I cancelled the original version of the grave actually I was doing before um, decades and I just gave up on it because it was really long. And then decades was really long. I nearly gave up on that. And I just forced myself to the end. Um, and that's probably not a good position when you're trying to be creative. So it's, you know, build your skills, get comfortable with writing the shorter form pieces because you can use them to build your reputation while you're working on something bigger. That's good advice. That's very good advice. How many drafts of decades did you have before you like wrote it? Yeah. Uh, that's a, you're assuming there was ever a draft. Was oh, okay. <laughs> um, I was trying to, all I ever had was like a basic plot outline. And the problem was I got to like, so the whole hook is the fact they take the serial killer out to find these bodies. And I never really got beyond that. I didn't really think oh, wow. so what happens next. So I, I, my story was going nowhere. I was about halfway into doing art for it. And I didn't really know how it ended. Um, and I wrote in a very piecemeal way. So I would maybe do a batch of five or six pages. And I said, right, I'm going to write the next bit. And it was just a mess. And huh. you know, right at the end of the, the process, I ended up, I, I scrapped about eight pages and I, read, and I drew another 16 to fill out a section in the first part. Because I was like, this makes no sense. This is just random stuff happening. Um, so there was, again, it's a good learning curve, but probably not a very pleasant one. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so there was, it was never one draft. There was lots of things kept happening and I kept coming back to it. So it took me about two years from beginning to end to get through it. And it's why, you know, you can notice the art changes quite a lot from beginning to end. And it's definitely much better by the end of it. Um, but, you know, it, with the great, the great is probably a better example because it was probably, it's probably three complete drafts of the script. Okay. So the, the rough script where I figured out all the plot beats and I worked through it. Um, and then I started drawing um, the first part. So I wrote the first part and second part in much more detail. Then I got to the end of the second part and I knew that I wanted the third part and fourth part to be quite different. I wanted to do something a little bit different. So I was in a good position then to look at that draft and go back and rework things. Um, and it didn't slow me down that much by then. It was maybe, it took me maybe three, four days to redraft those parts because I knew everything that was going to happen and I knew the stuff I needed to add. Um, so that was a little bit more structured and a bit more thoughtful. Um, whereas Decky's was probably blind luck by the end of it. So, Yeah, I think a lot of people, um, especially creative people early on in their, their journey, they, um, they get so excited by the, the spark of an idea and, and they dive in and it's either, you know, the, the cool concept or the cool character they've created and they haven't really, they haven't really thought it through into the end or, you know, have that end point in mind that, that, that they're working to. So that is a trap that, that a lot of people, including myself have, have fallen into. Yeah. So when you had the end point uh, to the grave and you said that you went back and you did three or four drafts, were you, were you able to sort of like seed the story with um, like some foreshadowing or some clues that now that you, you know, in the, in the drafts, you know, you knew where you were going. So you were able to like go back and, you know, on that first draft, you might not have known that like this aspect of the story was there. But when you go in and you do the second one, you're like, okay, if I'm going to get here, I can kind of seed that a, a, a little bit here. So did you do any of that with, with your drafts? Yeah, so uh, some of that happened while I was doing the art. Um, there were maybe some little visual things that I just came up with because I was, I was enjoying kind of working in the world and was, that was good. And some of them then went into the script as formal ideas that I would then develop throughout. So even things like the title of it, you know, there's in the full book, I think there's four different mentions of a grave. 
and one of them is very literal and the others are much more emotional um, and kind of more metaphorical for different things. And that was something I was able to see much more effectively once I had those kind of redrafts done because I could think more about, so what's the dialogue that's going to lead to those moments and how can it feel natural and say something that means something to me? Um, but yeah, so also in terms of visuals, you know, I was able to think much more clearly through if I knew what happened in the first part, which was quite locked down quite early on, I knew the things I wanted to happen mechanically for the story to be set up and the character beats that were in there. Um, and I knew from those moments, so what do they lead to? And how can I make sure they keep coming back? So is that whole, there's, a, there's a script writing rule about you show something three times and that's how you make it connect with an audience. Okay. Um, and there's a, there's a moment in the first part, and actually I show it four times in the story. Um, there's a moment in the first part where the main character takes a police badge off someone and that badge has um, an impact in the world, but not an, not an obvious one, but it's a, it's a callback that keeps coming through. Um, and I only really was able to do that because I knew that was an important moment in the first part. And then the more I thought about it, I thought, actually, that's a moment that, that can mean something and that I can do something with. So, um, so yeah, there was, a, there was a bit of a blend, but having the ability to go back and rewrite on my own time definitely helps. I bet it does. Are you like a one page a day kind of person? Do you try to set like uh, goals for yourself for uh, when you're working on stuff? Yeah. So, um, I see my writing process, I can write very fast. I can draft like the full script usually in a week. Um, okay. So that's pretty quick. But certainly for the art, it takes me about, with my current style, it's about five and a half, six hours per page. Okay. Um, I would try and do four or five pages a week um, nice. and then give myself some time to have a life, you know, crazy yeah. things like that. Um, you know, look after myself, maybe sleep, one of those things. <laughs> um, so, you know, and so I, I kind of would give myself some targets, but I also took pressure off myself as much as I could to think I want to be creating things that are, that are interesting on the pages. There are some pages that are going to be just basic good storytelling. You have to carry dialogue or you have to carry character moments and you want them to be clear and simple. But for the big set piece moments where I kind of, the full Sylvester Stallone that I was trying to bring in here and there, I really wanted those panel layers to be much more exciting and different. So, you know, things like panels breaking down and the way they shaped, that was very much the Howard Chaykin thing. And I needed time to figure those out or I needed time just to sometimes get my head in that place because the first draft will always be quite straightforward and in, in grids. And then I was like, well, what can I do with this now? You know, if these are the moments that have to happen, how can I make these really exciting on the page? Right. Yeah. That's, that's a really, that's a really cool insight into it because um, we talk a lot about action pages on this podcast and you know, they're, I mean, they're the, they're the cornerstone of what makes comics great is what you can do with action, whether it's, you know, basic punching and stuff like that, or whether it's moving from left to right or anything like that. And yeah. it's, you know, it, it's good to hear that people, you know, just to hear your process about how you take time to orchestrate that kind of stuff. And I was going to ask you about that because the stuff in, in her, the action sequences in there, the act, action beats that you have are very solid. You know, you have very clear silhouettes. Um, especially when the the female and the man they're finally having their final confrontation in the end, you know that uh, those though you have such clear clear beats. Um, when you're approaching action, do you like do you tend to like uh, do you tend to draw more like brawling movements, or do you like to use look up sort of like martial arts um, poses and things like that to draw? Um, it's a it's a combination. So I yeah. I think in terms of the character, how they okay. would so her. So her 
the, the main the, the main male character. He's not a hero, as you discover by the end. Right. Um, sorry. Um, so Paul is, uh, he's meant to be in some sort of special forces trained type. There's that sort of thing. He's, he's some form of hitman for hire. It's never really made clear exactly what. But thinking about someone like that, he's going to be probably the more Krav Magasco. Something yeah. that's very, very sharp, you know, small movements, really keeping on the inside of an opponent. So I, I did a lot of research to think, well, what would work? And actually, he uses a, I think it's called a caramvit, which right. is small, hooks around the, the, the pinky. So again, another thing people get disturbed by when they see my browsing history. Um, and it's like, no, no, it's funny, honestly. Um, it's just for research for a story. It just happens to have one. Um, but no, that's helpful to think that stuff through. Yeah. Because like, you know, so what do I need to research? How do I need to then pose that? And the thing with Krav Maga, some of the movements look quite subtle. So then you have to think, how can I exaggerate that and bring more of it out? So there's like some of the, the blows he's delivering have to be really clear. For the her character, who doesn't ever get a name, um, something I'm very fond of, it seems. <laughs> so he, she's more of a traditional kind of kickboxing, Thai kickboxing, because I was trying to think, so she's small, she's quite light, she's not going to have a lot of upper body strength, so she's going to rely on things that give her mobility, and then kickboxing makes a lot of sense, allows her to keep distance, and it's all about neutralizing joints and things like that. So then I have to research that and think about, so how would those styles mesh? Um, so it's quite an involved process and then really it comes down to what's going to communicate clearly to someone reading it you know I already do that research not so I can feel like I'm really clever I do it so it helps me to get a point across and maybe only 1% of people will pick up the different styles they're using but if that 1% do then I've probably done that job but I hope for everybody else it's just nice and clear so your your three your three uh, stories that we've talked about they're all uh, crime um stories do you do you have any future plans of of going into any other genres or do you, are you um you know you you want to stick with with one genre and just sort of explore that some more i think crime the reason i like crime fiction so much is there's so many ways you can approach it you know so you can go from something that's straight up really serious to something that's actually quite ridiculous mm -hmm. um and i was really inspired so there's a ed brubacher sean phillips book called fatal and they took the crime genre and then they added the supernatural into it and mm -hmm. horror and things like that. And they're often very close because, again, heavy blacks, lots of, you know, complex characters. Um, so I'll probably stick with crime fiction for the next couple of stories. But I've got a few ideas for like a proper outright horror piece, which is referencing things like some of Robert E. Howard's horror stories and H.P. Lovecraft, mm -hmm. Edgar Allan Poe. Um, and I'm, that's one of the ones I've got plans to do back in traditional inks. Um, and really try and stretch myself back into using traditional media because I'm almost entirely digital now. And I'm sort of feeling that, you know, people can never really enjoy that if you want to sell them a piece or you want to make it available some other way. Um, so I've had a few ideas. It's called, that story's called The Lesser Evil. And I'm just, I, I know what it's about. And I know it's another thing that's probably about identity um, and about kind of free will and how people see themselves in the world. So I, I always kind of come back to some of those concepts and those ideas. Um, but something that's probably going to be a lot more pulpy and hokey and, and hopefully a lot of fun. That sounds like fun. What, what do you use digitally? Do you use Photoshop or are you Clip Studio? Um, what do you use software wise? So I use, I use a combination of things, but my, all my line art is done in Procreate on the iPad. Okay. Pro. Awesome. Um, I've got a 12, the 12.9 inch iPad with uh, the Apple Pencil. Um, I've also got a wee small iPad Pro, which I use in my little sketchbook when I'm traveling to work on things because I can get rough ideas down. Um, so that's the majority of my work is done in that. 
um, all my layouts, all my thinking, quite a lot of my writing happens in it as well, actually. Um, and then I'll use Clip Studio for some things, for corrections, once I have it kind of downloaded. Um, I did all my lettering for the grave and all the layouts for the grave in, uh, in Clip Studio. But now I'm moving over, um, I'm using, so I use Procreate for everything now, for all my kind of line art and design and all those things. I'll be doing lettering in Illustrator, and then I'll do my layouts in Affinity, um, Affinity Publisher. So I'm, I'm giving myself a much wider variety of tools. Um, and it also means I focus on things much more. When I'm doing art, I'm doing art. I'm not trying to think about number to start lettering. So I have to be more thoughtful in my design phase and when I do my layouts. But once I'm lettering and once I'm laying out, then I can be totally focused on that. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, it's I, I love Illustrator for for lettering and stuff like that because I mean I've tried using Photoshop and everything, but um, you can't beat those vectors that you get on on Illustrator. Yeah, it's great. Um, yeah, it's great. Yeah, and uh, Clip Studio Paint is something I've always wanted to try out just because there's there's so much on there as well. But yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I did all of Decades in Clip Studio. Um, you know, and it's a it's a great tool. It's so powerful. And it's quite a lot of the other indie artists I know who work digitally and that's their go-to. Yeah. Um, I think just for me, it, it runs them, I'd have to have another setup and it's not as mobile. I do have a Surface Pro 3, which I use for pretty much all the decades. Um, but realistically, I like the flexibility of my iPad Pro. I can sit on my sofa mm. and I can, I can have music on in the background or something playing on the TV and I'm just working. And I can yeah. go anywhere to do that. So that works much better for me. Yeah, I... Uh... I dabble in, in drawing, um, and uh, I found that uh, the, the iPad and the, the Apple Pencil are the, the closest thing to actually, you know, drawing with, um, I had a lot of problems early on when I was using like a really cheap uh, uh, Wacom tablet to connect to a laptop, like where my hand was was not where, where my eye was, and it's, 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 it's pretty. I never thought I would be uh, a convert uh, to, to digital, but I, I'm slowly coming around to it. It just, it, I, for me, it just, it means I can be much more creative quickly. Um, I mean, I love working, I've been doing these little mini sketches recently using inks and proper Copic pens, mm -hmm. and I love doing them, and I love how immediate they are, but I can't be as, I can't be as quick in coming up with new ideas or messing around with stuff. You know, I, once I've done it, that's done. And I, there's something very cool about that, but it's quite limiting some, in some ways. And when I work in Procreate, I can blow it, a panel up all the way and think, you know what, actually, this is my lead image on this page. And I can do it just like that. And I can re-ink it. Um, and I love that flexibility. I, I find it really hard to go back from my main creation. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's sort of a double edged sword. It's the, uh, yeah, you can kind of go in with no fear because, you know, if you put a line down that you don't like, it's just a simple tap of two fingers. But it also, uh, you can sit there and, and doodle too much where if you were working traditionally, like that line is that line and that's all it could ever be. So it's, it's, it's a little bit of both of those. And I think, I suppose my style, in some ways I'm fortunate that I, my style is quite thick and chunky and heavy anyway. So I'm, I'm very comfortable accepting that some lines aren't especially refined looking and I'm okay with that because it adds to the texture and the tone of the work. Um, the thing I'm about to start working on as my next project, I'm hang it's the first time I'm going to get someone to color my work. Oh wow. And so I'm having to think much more closely about how clean the lines are. Mm. Um, but I don't want to lose things that I quite like about the way my style was developed. So how can I still keep some of those heavy blacks and not become, I think when my style gets really simplified down and too clean, it gets too far to the cartoony side for me. 
and then I feel like I'm making a really unpleasant, violent Disney comic. Um, <laughs> and the world doesn't need that, to be honest. So, um, so I, have oh, to I don't know. Of, I like the sound of that. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you, know, um, you know, I'll see how we get on. Maybe that's yeah. what for, as your approval. Um, but I've sort of held back from that. So I was thinking, how can I still keep those things? But it, it does mean you have to change your thinking. So I do have to clean my lines up a little bit if I'm going to ask someone to color them. Mm-hmm. Um, but then probably not too much. And maybe I'll get the colors back and then do a whole bunch of messy lines on top. We'll see how I feel. So would you ever like to um, transition to a role where you're just the writer or you're or just the artist? Or do you always want to sort of control all of the, all of the story yourself working in, in, in birth, both roles? Um, I think for the, for the stories I'm working on right now, um, they're very much things that have been in my head in some way for a long time. So I'd want to keep them and do them in the full way. But I definitely see there's a point where it's good for you as a creative to put yourself in different roles. And I think writing fuller, more detailed scripts would probably benefit me in some ways, thinking about what an artist would need. And there's so many artists that I, I see out in independent comics who I love. I keep thinking I wouldn't mind doing some short work with you or so that. So that's been in my mind for a while. As an artist, I don't know if I just drive a writer really mad um, because I've got a writer's mentality as well. I wouldn't just go, "Hey, do you know what would be better in this part? I'll do this." Um, so I, I might, I might not have any friends by the end. Um, but I would, I would love to try it. I would love to see because I think it would be. It forces me to make different choices if I'm there to. You know, Frank Quietly, um, I, I went to, he was doing a talk at the Glasgow Comic Con and he was talking about, someone asked him, do you, do you ever re- come up with new ideas based on what's there? Do you think I've got a better idea than this? And he said, well, that's not my job. He said, my job is to communicate what the writers put down as clearly as possible and in the best way. If I have an idea, I might phone them and ask them. He said, but that's not my job. And I thought about that a lot. So I mean, he's like one of the greatest comic artists of all time. And the reason why is because he, he's there to tell a story. So I think I'd probably have to just force myself out of my habit of going, but I can do this too. <laughs> and go, actually, yeah. this is your idea, it's your story. So it'd probably it'd be good for me. It'd be probably very good for my ego as well to be put in my place like that. <laughs> but either yeah. way, it'd be, yeah, I'd be, I'd be interested to see. I'm especially excited to see your, your colorist. Are you, are you pretty... Um, heavily involved in the comics community in your area do you have like a like a, a convention presence and stuff like that um i only started going to conventions this year just to go and start meeting people face to face um i've been very noisy on twitter over the last sort of year um and i've been really trying to make friends with you know people and I think there's, there's people who work in the same sort of genre as me who are amazing the guy called fraser campbell and there's um james corcoran and there's michael gordon people whose work i think is absolutely stunning and I look at that and think, well, you're like-minded, so why wouldn't I try and make connections and see if there's ways, you know, in this case, them helping me at the moment, because I'm still establishing this stuff, but maybe in the future I can help them. Um, but yeah, I want to be involved. I think comic, one of the things I love most about comics as a community is certainly the people that are creatives. They love it. They love making comics. And that comes through. And to be a positive force in that community of being a cheerleader for great work and, you know, kind of really recognize when people are doing something brilliant. I, I, I like to feel that I can, I can add to that conversation. That's beautiful. I wanted to applaud you right there because that's, that's a beautiful statement. Um, I, yeah, I talk about that all the time because like, you know, you're not into comics for the money or anything like that, you know, it's, or, or the fame really. You're, you're, you're doing it for the love of storytelling and for, for making these stories in the way that only you can make them in comics. 
Yeah, that's that's exactly it. That's exactly it. there's no other it's the most pure storytelling medium in the world in some ways. Yeah. It's, like, it's the earliest storytelling medium. It's the thing that our ancestors did in prehistoric days. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a beautiful thing to keep it going. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Could you tell us more about the grave? I'm really interested. You gave us the elevator pitch, but I, I'm, I really want to know more about your, the main character and what his motivations are, if you don't mind telling us about it. Yeah. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, yeah. So the grave is, uh, I say, it's, it's hard-boiled kind of crime fiction, and it's, it's set in a, a nameless kind of North Californian desert town. Um, and a mysterious man who, in the script, is just called Scar because I'm very unimaginative. That's um, awesome. He comes to town. He comes to town, and he finds himself in the middle of um, corrupt cops trying to take over a, a crime ring in their city, and he ends up really getting killed um, for it. And a year later, he comes back looking for revenge. But as he tries to take his revenge. Um, really unpleasant truths about everybody involved in what's going on start to come out. And, you know, you have to start asking questions. And the big thing in the centre of the story is, are you a victim, are you a survivor, or are you something worse? Um, and I was always really excited about how can you take like, the fundamentals of revenge fiction and crime fiction and talk about human beings need to be in control and what happens when you've been victimised and the choices you make to move on. So Scar is... Um, you know, he's got a few kind of, Sylvester Stallone is the main kind of visual reference. Certainly later in the story, Sylvester Stallone and Rocky IV, very specific. Um, <laughs> and what I was trying to look at was, the thing I loved about Stallone, and I'm a big fan even of his terrible films I really like, um, is that he's very vulnerable. You know, even though he's being a really badass type character, he's a very vulnerable presence. He's something quite emotional about him. And I thought the way he speaks, the way he kind of works through things was an interesting take on the normal revenge badass. Um, and there's other lots of little moments. There's stuff like um, Ajax from the Warriors, you know, him with the baseball bat in that film. You know, that's something I wanted to kind of keep, that kind of very Kurosawa, um, yeah. cool, cozying. There's little moments of that in there. There's a lot of silent moments there because of that. And then there's Clint Eastwood as, you know, the man with no name. Um, you know, I wanted that similar kind of level of focus and um, ruthlessness. But that Stallone element kept coming back out that actually, he's not really enjoying doing this stuff. You know, he's doing it because he now feels that's the thing he needs to do. Um, so he's not, he's a character who doesn't speak a huge amount in the story. I wanted him to express himself as much through action as possible. And the moments he does choose to talk, he reveals a lot about himself. But never in a way that he says, this is my past, this is my history. Just that, oh my God, this is what I've become, sort of stuff. Um, Maybe not quite so literal, but yeah, so he's, it's, it's definitely, it's a mix up of lots of different things, but I was, it comes through my own filter. So it comes out something different again. Yeah. And this is currently uh, on Kickstarter um, yep. and it's, it's doing very well on Kickstarter. At the time of this recording, you have uh, just over about two weeks left. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So a couple of weeks to go and fully funded, um, funded much higher than I was expecting, uh, which has nice. been lovely. So, is there any, is there anything else that, uh, like, are there any stretch goals that are out there that are possible to, to hit here in the last couple of weeks? So the, the two sets of stretch goals I put out, uh, we, we, we ran right through them um, okay. really, really fast. Um, faster again than I was expecting, so I was caught a bit off guard. Um, so at the moment, at certain, at certain pledge tiers, you can get a series of prints by some of my favorite indie artists, um, yeah. and they go along with a little series of prints by me, which are based on movie posters of movies that really inspired the grave. Cool. Um, but the, the coolest thing I was able to get as a stretch goal was a cover by um, 
one of Marvel's Stellgate artists, Alex Ogle. Ooh. So Alex done amazing covers for Daredevil, for The Punisher. He's done lots of really cool independent work and creator-owned stuff. And I'd been following him on Instagram and liking his stuff. And I obviously knew his work anyway. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to ask him if he wants to do a cover for me. And he came back really quickly. He said, yeah, this looks really cool. I'd love to do it. I'm like, all right, cool, thanks. Um, <laughs> I was a bit starstruck for a while. Um, and I was thinking, okay, I need to give him a brief of what I want. <laughs> so, so I kind of gave him this thing. And he came back with the cover, and it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, I wouldn't mind if it's Kickstarter exclusive. I'm not going to sell it anywhere else. Um, okay. And it's absolutely stunning. And, you know, I wouldn't be sad if people choose that over my cover. I'm very proud of my cover, but it's much better. So I'm just like, it's just that joy. So that was a really cool one to hit. And then I've got one more in mind if we get to 100 backers, which is a print copy of her. Um, oh, which wow. Everybody that buys a print copy and above. So it's a really, that's a real kind of add-on, I think. Because um, I'm really proud of that story. It really set me up for some of the things I wanted to try. And I think it, it'll look really cool in this small floppy format. So that'll, that'll be the next one if we get to 100 backers. So will you, uh, for future products or projects, are you thinking uh, Kickstarter is going to continue to be the, the place that you go? Or do you have any ideas of like, uh, you know, pitching publishers, um, anything like that? Um, you know, it's this, I'm a bit of a control freak. That's probably the, the main thing to take away. And the reason why I do so many things myself is I like to understand how everything goes together. Um, I would like to work with a publisher because you get a lot of benefits of people having some perspectives on your work. And obviously it gives you usually a wider audience, helps you get it to more people. Um, but I don't feel like I have to. Um, I think while so the story I'm working on, the next one that's going to be in colour, um, Wild Nature, I, there's a couple of publishers I think I might approach and just see, would you be interested in this as a pitch? Um, but I'd probably still be interested in doing some element of Kickstarter to go along with it. Mm-hmm. Um, because the thing with Kickstarter that I really love is that it's a community thing more than, more than fundraising. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could have paid for the print run on, on, of The Grave on my own. I, I wasn't, it wasn't so much money that I couldn't have afforded it somehow. But I wouldn't have got the benefit of people being interested in the story. And I wouldn't have got the benefit of people kind of going, we're along for the ride here. Mm-hmm. And it lets me make a much better product than the one I would pay for on my own. Because it lets me create all the cool extras. It lets me make the print run beautiful. It gets me that Alex Ogle cover. And you only get that when people are invested in you as a creator. Um, so I think just moving to a publisher, you lose some of that connection. But there's definitely a few things that I think would maybe benefit. Um, but I'm not in a rush. So I might pitch a couple of ideas. But truthfully, I was, you know, the next story is probably going to be fairly hyper-violent and may not suit many publishers. So I might have to be thoughtful about that, I suppose. I like the sound of that. Um... <laughs> I, I, you're speaking my language when you're talking about revenge fiction and everything like that. Cause, um, first blood was a movie I watched way too young and mm-hmm. it stuck with me all my years. Um, but I, uh, what, where can people find decades? Is that still in print anywhere? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've got an Etsy store. Um, oh, cool. My Etsy store is three thirteen comics, uh, all written as a word, or maybe you can type it in. I can't remember anymore. I'll send okay. you the details. Um, <laughs> so I don't go on a huge amount because all my life is kickstarted. Um, so you can still get decades. Um, I've actually, the low resolution digital version is for free on my website. Oh, cool. So you can read the whole thing. Um, it's on dftaylor.art. Um, so everything's there. And so is her. You know, I, I like to make stuff in its low res form available to people. Um, decades, I say, I'm really proud of it. And I think it's a great story. And it, it shows a lot of things I was working towards. And, you know, it gives people an opportunity 
to get into it that way. But yeah, I, I make some available. The print version, I think, is $12. I'd have to go and check. It's, it's £8 in, in British money. Um, and I'll be selling that at conventions um, when I go and do them next year. So that'll come along. And also, if you pledge at the really high tiers of my Kickstarter, you get a copy of that too. Oh, cool. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, we'll make sure that we put links to um, all of that in, in the show notes. Great, thank you. Yeah. So going along with that, um, you, you, you mentioned your Etsy store and your website. Do you want to let people know where they can find you on, um, on social media so that they, they want to sure. see more stuff about uh, the grave and more, more projects they can give you a follow? Yeah, sure. So on Twitter, I am at DFTaylorMusic. Um, which points you to when I still thought music was my career, but <laughs> can't change it once it's out there. Um, so that's, that's where I, I make a lot of noise pretty much every day. Um, and then Instagram, I try and post once, um, once every day, and that's Mr. David F. Taylor. And you can find pretty much, I, I, I always put my work in progress stuff up there. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll always get to see new panels, sketches, um, things of interest. And occasionally I suffer people with a, with a gym selfie, so I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but so uh, Noah, do you have any uh, final questions or final thoughts as we wrap up here? Yes, because my wife will be super pissed if I don't ask. Um, she's a musician as well, and she's trying to work her way into writing comic scripts because she loves the medium too. Um, are you, are, do, you, do you like to write music for your stories or like, is it, does it sort of help to have like a music background when it comes to rhythm of things in comics? Yeah, definitely for me. Um, yeah. my, my writing, so The Grave has an entire soundtrack Oh, nice. um, so it's very detailed of kind of specific moments it's a lot of it's kind of a there's a whole kind of electronic music movement called retro wave and there's a lot of stuff from that so it's, it sounds like movie movie music from the 80s but it's much more modern and oh, kind of cool. lots of that um there's kind of really like neil young type stuff with acoustic guitars and really distorted electrics kind of playing scrolling notes and so on. um so I think, I think very much audio, everything kind of ties together for me when I'm thinking stories. I, I don't imagine as a movie, but I think about how do I want people to feel? Um, and that, you know, that really helps. So everything I work on tends to have some sort of music. In my in little Kickstarter video, there's a, there's a piece called Trent Muller called um, Still on Fire. And that is probably the anthem for the grave because it's, it's, it's something that just captures everything. It's moody, it sounds like the cure. Um, it's kind of rolling along, it's really power, powerful. So. Now, music's really important. Um, and occasionally I do, if I'm writing stuff, I might think of something myself that I play, but not so much. I like to take out inspiration from others for that thing. I have a, I have a follow-up question on that. Um, with writing, um, do, you, do you write, uh, can you write with songs with lyrics or do you listen to, to instrumentals? Because for myself, I listen to stuff without lyrics, just sort of instrumentals that are sort of like going on, uh, not quite white noise, but kind of sort of just... Um, you know, going on in the background, just sort of as I'm writing. So w- what's your process with writing and music? Uh, instrumental. Instrumental. It gets in the way of the dialogue otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is probably my most obnoxious habit right here. I talk my dialogue out. Um, nice. So I'm often walking around my apartment just speaking to myself when I'm driving places. I'm talking to what the characters are saying. Um, and I do the accents and everything. <laughs> so. <laughs> Having, having music with hilarious and seeing me doing a deep text and accent is one of the funniest things on earth. Um, and I'm glad that no one will ever have to witness that. So, um, certainly not here. Um, <laughs> but um, lyric, lyrics just get in the way. Um, and certainly the sort of music I like, I'm, I, I'm, so, I'm really focused on language and I love 
I love really clever lyricists anyway, so I just get absorbed in that instead. They're really helpful sometimes listening to songs to get you in the right mood for writing. Um, and when I'm drawing, it doesn't matter at all. You know, that's fine. I can have pretty much anything on in the background because I'm just not listening to it. It's just noise. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, writing, it can be something that takes too much of my attention. It just has to get me in the right atmosphere. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, David, I want to thank you for, for being on. Um, I'm really excited uh, to see what comes about um, with The Grave and with uh, some of this, this other stuff that you talked about. Um, I will put links to your website, your Etsy store, and your social media in the show notes. Um, if anybody would like to give us a follow, we are on Twitter at ConstructCompod. We are on Instagram at Constructed Comics Pod. We are on Facebook at Constructing Comics. I'm sorry, that's Facebook forward slash Constructing Comics. Um, we also have a YouTube channel under the same name where we do some of the more visually heavy episodes. Um, and I, uh, I'll put links to that in our show notes as well. I'd like to thank everybody for listening and encourage everybody to go out there and uh, make some comics. And we'll be back with a, another episode very soon.